0: Well, I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. It is uh, certainly good to be back last week. I appreciate Judge Gravel filling in for me. Uh, had a chance to go down to Mazatlan, Mexico. Many of you guys know we do our short-term missions down there and had a chance to meet with some of the organizations that we partner with and uh, take a, a small team down to just do a little recon and a, uh, you know, try to make our summer trips even better. I got back late Wednesday night and got to celebrate Thanksgiving with my family. And one of the things that we do as a family, I'm sure many of you have a very similar tradition, is we just go around the dinner table and we share what we're thankful for. And so I'd like just this morning to do a little bit of that. And I'm going to go ahead and take God, Jesus, salvation, all the Sunday school answers. We're going to go ahead and take those off the table because I know you'd all just call those out. So we want to take those off the table because we're grateful for those. They're very important. But I just want to hear from you guys. What are some of the things that you're grateful for? What are some of the things that you were thankful for this year? Sleep. Good. I was a college student, right? Yeah. David. What's that? Grandchild. New grandchild. That's a good one. Loving family. Loving family. And Texas A&M win over LSU wow. in seven overtime. Yeah. <laughs> grateful for that one. What else? That's it? The rain. Excellent. Yes. Right. Friends. Transition. Say that again. Good health. good health. Oh, that's a good one. I'm surprised nobody said this one yet. Sex. Are you awake? <laughs> right? I don't know about you, but that's one that I'm extremely grateful for. Uh, You know, someone once told me, they said, you know, pastor, you you talk about sex almost as much as you talk about Jesus. I said, that's because I love both. Uh, And this morning, we're coming to a passage in our series in 1 Corinthians where Paul is going to talk about sex. And uh, I know it's a little bit awkward and it may be jarring for you to talk about that on Thanksgiving weekend, but this is where we are in our series. And it is something that when we understand how God has designed it to be, it's something that we should be grateful for. And, and unfortunately, there's a lot of churches, uh, I think churches make two mistakes, really, when it comes to this topic. And the first one is, a lot of churches just don't talk about it. They don't talk about it at all, and so people don't understand a biblical perspective of what God intends. And, and the great gift that God has given it. In fact, Hebrews calls it holy. It's an act of worship when it's done within the right context, which is within marriage. The second mistake that I think churches and pastors make is sometimes they'll talk about it, but they'll talk about it the wrong way. They make it something bad, something not good. And what we need to realize is that it is good. Can I get an amen? amen? When it's in the right context, when it's within a biblical marriage between one man and one woman who are committed to each other for a lifetime, the struggle is that our culture has twisted that and tried to redefine that. Our culture has has taken what God intended to be good and turned it into something not good, something that has been defiled. And we're, what we're going to see that, that within the Corinthian church, this is the case. You guys remember as we've been going through Corinthians that this is a church who's struggling to figure out how to live out their faith in a very, very fallen world. And so Paul is not going to run the risk of not talking about this very real situation. Just like many pastors today, I I think they're either silent or they speak about it in a sacrilegious way. And our goal this morning is, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we want to speak truthfully, we want to speak boldly, uh, and we want to speak honorably about what God's Word has to say about this issue. And this morning, we're not so much talking about sex itself as we are talking about sexual immorality. And I've already defined that a little bit, but let me just state it again. Sexual immorality is any sex that takes place outside of a biblical marriage, which the Bible defines marriage as being between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Anything outside of that, the Bible would call sexual immorality. Okay, so anything outside of that, the Bible would call sexual immorality. And as we think about the Corinthians, we have to see that the Corinthians really don't know the difference between legality and morality. And Judge filled in for me last week, and he preached about uh, how they were having lawsuits among each other. They were fighting with each other. This church has, has a number of problems, and it seems a little bit odd that Paul would transition from lawsuits among believers to sex. And sexual immorality, but in their minds, there was really no difference. Because they, in their minds, what they said is, well, if the law allows it, then it must be moral. Okay? So if the law allows for something, then it must be moral. And they lived in a culture that was saturated with sex. Remember, if you think back to where Corinth is, it sits just below the Temple Mountain of the Temple of Aphrodite. And every night, a thousand temple prostitutes would make their way into the city and offer their services to the people to help them worship the goddess Aphrodite. And what's happening with the Corinthians is that they're failing to realize that once they put their trust in Christ, they now have a new life and a new way of living. And so they're, they're struggling to figure this out. They're trying to figure out what does it mean. Now, I know some of you may be a little bit concerned about Having this topic spoken about this morning, Uh, and just just so you know, we're going to honor the Lord in the way that we talk about it and the way that we look at this this morning. If you're worried about teenagers, kids, whatever, college students, um, just so you know, I've got two of my seven-year-olds that are in here this morning. Um, And parents, uh, you may be surprised that our seven-year-olds know about it. And I just want to make a couple recommendations. One is a series of books called How and When to Talk to Your Children About Sex, um, because they need to hear it. They need a biblical perspective on it, and they need to hear it from you young. The average age that a child is introduced to pornographic images off the Internet is age 11. And I can tell you from an experience this past summer, our kids came home, and they were hearing about something at seven years old and had questions about it. And because we had spoken to them already about using the technical terms, the the biological terms for body parts and the differences between men and women, we were easily able to explain what they had heard uh, in a way that did not leave them scarred for life all right we 'll just put it that way uh, so it 's important that we talk about these things. You see the Corinthians were in this culture that was saturated with sex, and uh, they were they were asking questions like well, You know, what does it mean to to live as a Christian in this fallen culture? And in their minds, they had started down this extremely slippery slope. And we saw a little bit of that last week because they reasoned that if we're living according to human judgment, then why not take our disputes before unsaved judges who will judge according to human wisdom? And if we are accepting legal opinions from unsaved judges regarding disputes among believers, why not also accept the legal definition of morality? Why not let the legality determine our morality? But there's a big difference. And they're struggling to figure this out. They're struggling to understand what it looks like. The world that the Corinthians lived in they failed to understand that they were called out of that world by Jesus, but left in the world for Jesus. They were called out of the world by Jesus, but left in the world for Jesus, and they had a purpose, yet they were bringing the world and the world's wisdom into the church. Now, our culture today is not that different from the Corinthian culture. You think about... All the things that we have, our our culture is heavily affected by sex, from our clothing to schools, TV, films, music, media, technology, even our coffee is affected by sex and sexuality. It affects everything that we hear, everything that we read, everything that we see, and everything that we think, and even the things that are legislated are affected by sexuality in our culture today, without a doubt. Every single one of us is affected by this topic of sex and sexual immorality. And so it's important for us to understand that you may think, well, this is not an area that I struggle in. And it may not be a major struggle for you, but you are certainly affected by it. And there come questions when we look at the text this morning, because as the Corinthians were trying to figure out their place in this world and how they live it out and what's the, what's the balance uh, between living in freedom with Christ, but also you know living in a way that honors God but not being bound to the law they 're struggling to figure this out and so Paul, in this next section he 's going to answer some questions he 's going to answer some questions that they have and and if you 'll forgive me this morning instead of statements in our bulletin in our main points uh, i don 't have i don 't have statements to give you, but I have kind of questions that I see in this text that the Apostle Paul is addressing that I think many of us still face today. We hear these questions over and over again. I was a youth pastor for 12 years, and believe it or not, this is a big topic that teenagers want to talk about. They want to know about it. They want to know, what does the Bible have to say? How do I honor the Lord in this? And so this morning, we're going to look at this, keeping in mind, as Peter Kreeft says, He says sex is the effective religion of our culture. It affects everything we do, and so it's important that we look at God's word and we understand what it says so that we can understand how to honor him. So the first question that I want us to answer this morning is, don't Christians have freedom from the law? Don't Christians have freedom from the law? You see, the Corinthians were living in a way that that they understood, hey, when I put my trust in Jesus Christ... Paul elsewhere has taught that, hey, you're not bound to keep the law. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, there was a big debate in the early church about what parts of the law should the Should the Gentile Christians keep? And what parts shouldn't they keep? Should they be circumcised? Should they not be circumcised? Do they have to keep all the festivals? And so the early church fathers, the disciples, the apostles, send out a letter saying, hey, we we want two things from you. We want you to not eat meat that's been strangled in sacrifice to an idol, and we want you to abstain from sexual immorality. So that's kind of loose there. I mean, there's, there's a lot of gray area in there. And I think this is one of the struggles that we have as Christians is there is a lot of gray area in what we can and can't do. But what's not gray is what principles do we live by that honor God? And so we have this question of, well, if I'm free from trying to keep the law as a way of salvation, then doesn't that mean that I'm free to do what I want? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 beginning in verse 12. The Apostle Paul, he's quoting the Corinthians He's saying, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be brought under control of anything. Let's stop there. So what is Paul saying? He's, he's quoting probably, most likely, the Corinthians had taken what Paul had said about grace and living under grace and that all things are permissible. Just like when Jesus proclaimed that all food was clean, they've now kind of taken his statements about grace and salvation by grace through faith apart from works, and they've twisted it and said, hey, everything's permissible for me. I'm under grace. I can do whatever I want and still go to heaven. And so they've got this twisted view of grace, and they've said all things are permissible for me. Now, when they use that phrase permissible, literally it means lawful. What they're saying is that, hey, if it's lawful, if the secular law says it's okay, then it must be all right. But what we have to understand is that God has a different standard. And they're really struggling because they're kind of faced with two different types of false teachers. On one hand, they have the false teachers that are teaching legalism. These are the ones who are typically coming from a Jewish background, and they're saying, no, you have to follow all the old laws. On the other hand, they have the libertine teachers. And they're teaching, hey, as you're free in Christ, you get to go do whatever you want. And the reality is that Even today, we still fall into typically one of these two categories. But both categories demonstrate that they fail to understand the reality of God's grace. They don't understand how it works. Those who teach legalism, uh, in Colossians, Paul says it has the appearance of wisdom but lacks any true value. That you've got to follow this law and this law and this law. and, And I know some of you who are box checkers like myself, you just want like... Okay, give me the list of what I, what I can and can't do. That's easy. It's easy to live by those rules, but that's not what God calls us to. He calls us to live under grace. When we try to put ourselves under the law, we fail to understand God's grace. At the same time, if we swing to the other side and we say, Well, God, God gives us grace. I get to live however I want. Then we also fail to understand God's grace. Because although God's grace is free... It's certainly not cheap because it cost him his one and only son. So Paul is trying to draw them back to a more balanced view to understand what it is that God wants from them. There's a couple of great passages of Scripture that I want to point you to. One is Galatians 5, 1, and then later in verse 13, the apostle Paul writing to a different church says, Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then in verse 13 he says this, for you are called to be free, brothers. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but to serve one another through love. Another great passage I'd encourage you to go home and read. We don't have time to look at it this morning, but the entire chapter of Romans chapter 6. It's one of my absolute favorite chapters. And Paul says this He says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? By no means. May it never be. See, this wasn't the only church that was struggling with this. Even the Roman church, they had this idea that, well, if God gives me grace when I sin, then if I sin more, then I get more grace, which is a good thing. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it works. We need to be striving to honor God with our bodies. Later on, Paul is going to address this specifically. Chapter 8 through 10, Paul's going to talk even more about the difference between liberty and license. There's a big difference between having liberty in Christ and having license. We are freed from sin. We are not free to sin. And the reality is this, that when Jesus Christ sets us free, it doesn't mean that I'm free to do what I want. I'm not free to do as I please. I'm free to do what pleases Christ. And so it is with our sexuality that we are free to do what pleases Christ, and we know that that is to refrain from any sex outside of a biblical covenant marriage. It's interesting to me today as I prepared this message, I found a number of statistics, a number of things on, um, on sexual addiction. And Paul says in the second half of this verse, he says, I will not be mastered by anything. And one of the studies that I found said that sex has the same effect on your body, on your brain as cocaine, and it can become Addictive. Paul says, I'm not going to be mastered by anything. Jesus tells us that no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. And uh, over and over again, I kept coming up on these studies about different addictions. Sexual addiction was usually one of the first ones that was listed. But there are a number of other things that are kind of outside of this that I just wanted to bring up as well. We have addictions to drug, addictions to alcohol, addictions to nicotine, food, after Thanksgiving, who wants to think about that one, right? We become addicted to food. We become addicted to codependent relationships, to gambling, to video games. All of these things can be easily become our master. To where they're no longer just something that, that God has given us that we can enjoy a little bit, but they take control. They begin to run our lives and they become number one. And I started thinking about what is, what is the cure for these addictions? If this thing has mastered you, if one of those things, or maybe as you're sitting there thinking there's something else in your life that's mastered you, that's become your master, that you can't get away from it, that you have become addicted to it. And where do these addictions end? They end with a new master. They end with a new master. That master is Jesus Christ. And I'll say this. I'll, let, me, let me add this on. Jesus Christ and Christ alone needs to become your master. But there are some who have been struggling with addiction for so long that there are actual chemical imbalances in your brain that has, have caused you to crave that. And there may be additional steps that you need to, to take uh, in order to be set truly free. But your hope is not in treatment. Your hope is not in medication. Your hope is in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. He needs to be your master. He is the only one that can set you free from those addictions. So are we, are we free from the law? Don't we have freedom from the law? The freedom is this. We are free not to do as we please, but what pleases Christ. The second question I have is this. God made me a sexual being. God gave me these desires. Why wouldn't he want me to just fulfill them? Let's look at what Paul says in the following verses. Verse 13, he says, quoting the Corinthians again, Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will do away with both of them. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. All right, so one of the first things you need to understand is that the Corinthians, actually many of them denied the resurrection. And Paul's going to talk about that later in chapter 15, but that actually affects the way that they think about other things. Because in their mind, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, and if I'm not going to be raised from the dead, then when I die, when I leave this earth, my body's done. God has no other use for it, so I may as well get all the use out of it as long as I want. And so they had this saying that food for the stomach and the stomach for food, right? Meaning that when I get hungry, I eat. So there must be other natural urges that God has given me that when I have them, I should just be free to fulfill them. And the reality is that God has made us sexual beings. He's made us with desires. But there's a time and a place that he wants us to use those. And it's completely different from food. Food. Uh, it's, it's a little bit different. They argued that sex was pleasurable and necessary, and when their bodies signaled that they were hungry, that they should eat. And so at the same time, when their bodies signaled sexual desire, that they should be able to satisfy that desire. But Paul is going to draw a sharp line between the stomach and the body. He's going to draw a sharp line, and he he's, talks about the body here, whereas other places he's talked about the flesh. And when he talks about the body, he's talking about more than just the physical, right? We know that, that when Paul uses the term body to talk about the human being, he's actually talking about both parts of the body. He's talking about the material, which is the flesh, the outside that, that we can touch. And he's talking about the immaterial, the spirit. And Paul says, your body, your body is meant for eternity. Now, I hope this will get a big amen, especially after we gorged ourselves on Thanksgiving, that it's not this body that will last for all eternity. We get new bodies. Amen? Amen. Mine's going to look a little bit more like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I hope. Old, you know, 1970s Arnold Schwarzenegger, not not (laughs) present day. But I'm hoping it looks a little bit more like that. Maria! All right? Paul says, look, you've got to understand that these... These two things together, when we are raised from the dead, just as Christ had a physical body and is a spiritual being, that they are intertwined. And they are not for you or for your use. They are for something much, much greater. In Paul's words, when he says the body is not for immortality but for the Lord, and then he says that the Lord is for the body. God did not create the body with its sexual capabilities and drives to satisfy these desires indiscriminately. I had one author that I read this week put it this way. He said, sensuality is to sex as gluttony is to food. When we overindulge, when we use something in a wrong way, it becomes sinful. And so Paul is telling them, listen, you've got to understand that, that yes, you have these desires, but it's a little bit different than food. Because now you're making a moral choice about something. You're choosing whether or not you're going to honor God in the way that you do this. And he goes on and he, he reminds them in the next few verses. And he, in Verse 20, he's going to tell them to glorify God in your body. He says, we're not to use our bodies to serve ourselves, but to serve God. Our bodies are not for ourselves. They're for God. And that leads me to my next question. Which is, it's my body, can I do what I want? Aren't I free to do as I please since it's my body? Let's look at what Paul says. Starting in verse 15, he says, Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? Should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one in spirit with him. What is Paul talking about here? What is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, you've got to understand that God intends for sex to be a binding activity. It's, it's part of the glue that holds a husband and wife together it strengthens their relationship. Sex is more than just physical. How often have we heard today that sex is just physical? Just like the Corinthians, hey, I've got a physical need, I'm going to meet that need. But Paul is pointing out here that it is spiritual, it's emotional, it's physical, and it's mental, and it binds the husband and wife relationship together. In fact, Hebrews uh, and other places in Scripture remind us that the union between a husband and wife is also a picture of Christ and his church, that oneness, that bond that they have, that they're to experience with each other. And So when we take sex outside of the marriage relationship, Paul uses the example of prostitution because that was the major issue of their day. But when we bind ourselves with someone else, when we bind ourselves with an image from our computer screens, we're misusing what God has intended. We're misusing what God has intended. And we have to understand that our body is not our own. Express the way that God intends, sex is a bonding agent with our spouse, and there's nothing else like it. While the culture warns our children about the dangers of pregnancy or STDs, They ignore the reality of the emotional consequences of sexual immorality. They ignore it. Bonds are easily created but not easily broken. Many of us, many can remember every person they've ever been bonded to. Many may even still get uncomfortable when you're around that person that's not your spouse. The reality is that in all the marriage counseling and premarital counseling that I've done you know, I've yet to have one person say you know I wish me or my spouse had, had just slept around a little more before we got married no one has ever come to counseling because of the lack of sex they had before they got married but I've counseled many of couples who've said this woman this man is still in our life we have to be around him they work together they still see each other and it's creating all these problems or there's memories, there's flashbacks, there's this bond that's still there and it's affecting our marriage. And, and I can tell you, there are some of you here that are thinking, well, that's just reality. That's just the reality of today. There's no way that anyone could make it through all the way to their marriage night. And I can tell you, uh, I'm very proud of the fact that my wife and I uh, were both virgins on the day we got married. I've never been with another woman other than my wife. And I can tell you I can't imagine, I can't imagine uh, what it would be like if if it were different. It is a blessing for me. And it's a blessing every time that we are together to, to know that there is safety there. And the reality is that when sex is taken outside of marriage, it becomes destructive. Something that God intended to be constructive to build that relationship becomes destructive because men use it as a way to get affirmation. And women use it as a way to find protection and find security. And the reality is that outside of the marriage relationship, outside of that bond, it becomes abusive. Because it's not about what you can give or what you can build. It's about what you can get, both men and women. And so they begin using other people. So we come back to this question about, it's my body. Can't I use it as I please? And Paul very simply reminds them that it's not your body. You are joined with Christ. You are joined with him. And he's going to go on and explain this further in the following verses. Verse 18, he picks up and says, run from sexual immorality. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. On the contrary, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, earlier, Paul has spoken about the church, the local church body, as God's temple. He says, hey, this is the place where God comes to meet and to worship with you. You guys are houses of the Holy Spirit. His presence is there with you. And here, Paul is speaking of the individual believer. And he says, you've got to remember that your body houses the Holy Spirit. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, the Holy Spirit indwells inside of you. And think about when you worship. When you worship God, it begins inside of you. This is the place. The temple was the place where God would meet with his people. Your body is a temple. This is the place where God meets with you where God meets with you. He says, you're going to take that and you're going to defile that? You're going to break that down? For what? And then he reminds them, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus Christ paid a heavy penalty to claim you as your own. And I love, going back to Romans chapter 6, Paul says that we are either going to be weapons of unrighteousness, slaves to sin and weapons of unrighteousness, or we will be slaves to Jesus Christ using our bodies as weapons of righteousness. There's no in-between. There's no in-between. So we have to remember that we belong to Christ. You are not your own. Everybody say that. I am not my own. I am bought with a price. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price And Christ has paid that. The last thing I want us to see is how do we overcome sexual immorality? There may be some here this morning who are struggling with this. I'm willing to bet there are many here this morning that struggle with this. How do we overcome this? It's saturated our culture. It's saturated our lives. I want to give you two really quick answers. The first is run. The first is we have to run. Verse 18, Paul says, run from sexual immorality. Some translations say flee. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you may know the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph was a handsome, good-looking man, and he's in slavery. He's working for a man named Potiphar in Egypt, and Potiphar's wife notices him and begs him, come to bed with me, come to bed with me, and he continues to refuse her. He says, I'm not going to do this. I would not only dishonor my master Potiphar, but it would also dishonor God. I'm not going to sleep with you. And one day, she corners him when he's alone. And she grabs hold of him and starts to drag him to her bed. And this young man runs out of his clothes to get away from this. He does everything he can and runs away from it. I think this is the image that Paul probably has in his mind that, You have to fight like your life depends on it To run away from this There's no messing with A little bit with it Or I can watch a little bit Or I can see a little bit Or we can go this far Paul says run from it This is no gray area There's no room to play around with this Paul says run, run away Opposite direction Run And the second thing that he tells us is to remember Remember whose you are my dad 's here this morning it 's something uh, that he would always say to me before I 'd go anywhere before I'd do anything uh, when they drop me off of college, even now, uh, when, when my parents leave standing in the driveway, gives me a big hug, a big kiss, he says, "Remember who you are." When I was growing up, when I go to spend the night at a friend 's house, I always thought it meant, um, "If you mess up and I have to come pick you up, uh, remember that it reflects on me and uh, the rod will help you remember whose you are. But as I got older as I got older, I understood he wasn't saying, Hey, don't do anything to harm the name Turner. He was saying don't do anything to harm the name of our Heavenly Father. Belong to Him. You belong to Him. And that's what Paul is saying. Remember whose you are. Remember who paid for you. Remember who bought you, who gave his life for you. Do what pleases him. Do what brings honor and glory to him. I want to share just a a couple stats here. These are uh, from a number of different studies, but these are our current reality. 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women report that they are addicted to pornography. Many more... Are lying. Those who identify as fundamentalist Christians, 91% are more likely to look at porn than most others, and the most common day that they look at pornography is Sunday. Those who are single Christians, 68% of young men and 18% of women admit to using porn at least once a week. 56% of divorce from married couples. Uh, 56% of those cases involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites The average age, I shared this one earlier The average age of first internet exposure to pornography is 11 4.2 million pornographic websites on the internet A quarter of all searches are for pornographic That's 68 million per day There's about 1.5 billion pornographic downloads per month. In the last two minutes, as I've been sharing these statistics, $369,000 has been spent on pornography. Almost 3.4 million people have viewed pornography, and nearly 45,000 people have searched for adult terms in the last two minutes. Are we a culture that has been saturated by sex and sexual immorality? Does it affect every single one of us? Absolutely absolutely how do we think about this are we going to think about this are we going to bring the world's wisdom into the church and just say it's no big deal or are we going to allow the word of God to define how we think and feel and act remembering whose we are and as we remember whose we are let that inspire us to run what God had formed and made good man has defiled We have millions of people in our culture who are addicted to sex, millions of people who are affected by STDs, millions of babies who are killed every year, revealing that self-ownership is the real problem. When it comes down to it, the reality is we want to be in control of our own lives, and we put ourselves on the throne, and we say, I own my life. I'm going to do what I want. It's the sin of idolatry. We take one of the gifts of God, capital G, and we allow it to become a small g God in our lives. And Paul says, it can't be that way. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must honor the Lord with our sexual purity. We must honor the Lord in all that we do in this area. Now, I want to challenge us this morning. To live in light of the resurrection. To live in light of God's grace. Understanding that, that even though you may have struggled in this area in the past, and maybe you're currently struggling with it, when you have entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ, he makes all things new. Scripture tells us that when we are in Christ, we are a new creation. We are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. The only way to overcome... The old master is to have a new and greater master. I want to challenge you this morning. You may have put your trust in Jesus Christ a long time ago, but you're recognizing this morning that there's another master in your life that's competing for that number one spot. It may be sex. It may be something else. Whatever that is, I want to encourage you to turn that over to the Lord this morning. You may be here this morning and have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, And you don't understand why this is so important. But I hope you can see from some of those statistics and some of the realities of what sex does outside of God's design for marriage that it's destructive. And my hope for you this morning is that you would first begin a relationship with Jesus Christ by grace through faith. Understanding that he will make you new. You can change the desires in your life to be in line with God's word. My prayer this morning for each of us is that we would remember whose we are. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful for the beautiful gift of sex that you have given us within the marriage relationship. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for the times that that we abuse it, that we take it outside of the context for which you've designed it. And we bring dishonor to your name. Lord, we pray for those this morning who are, who are struggling in this area. Lord, that they would recognize your power. That if you were powerful enough to raise your son from the dead, you were powerful enough to change our addictions and our desires. You were powerful enough to overcome. In fact, it was the resurrection that proved that sin and death had been overcome. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom in this area, that we would bring honor and glory to your name. Let's call this